Welcome to Tales from the Rabbit Hole. I'm your host, Mick West. My guest today is Mike. Mike is a member of the 9-11 Truth community from New York, and we're going to talk about uh, his involvement in that uh, community. And uh, so welcome to Tales from the Rabbit Hole, Mike. Thanks, Mick. Thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate it. Okay. Uh, now, is there something you, w- you wanted to do before we, we got started? Sure, yeah. I just wanted to have a very quick moment of silence for the victims of 9-11, because I think it's really important to, to keep that in, in mind as we have these discussions. And uh, that includes all the people killed that day. It includes the even more people that have died from breathing in the dust at Ground Zero. And it includes all the people killed in the 9-11 wars, both Americans and non-Americans. All right. Thank you, Mick. All right. Well, thank you for that. And thank you for being here. Now, you emailed me a few days ago, and you, know, you basically told me that you've kind of seen some of my stuff on the internet, and you, you, know, you kind of found some of it interesting, and obviously you disagree with some of it, but then, mm. then again, you probably agree with some bits here and there. Can you say like how you got into the 9-11 truth movement? Sure. I believe the official story for about 10 years, mm. and a friend of mine nagged and nagged and nagged and nagged me for three years to watch the film Zeitgeist the movie. And I was actually more interested initially in the part about Jesus not existing than I was in the 9-11 piece. Um, I'm I'm an atheist, and that was a topic that I was already interested in. I actually read a book called The Jesus Mysteries, which was very, very similar to what was expressed in the film. Um, I still don't know what's really the most historically accurate thing about that, but it was interesting to me anyway. And The 9-11 piece of that film, it didn't convince me of anything right away, but it just kind of got me thinking, wow, this is pretty interesting. I never never heard of most of the things they talk about in that film. And I just started doing research. So did you did you immediately start like reading or looking at other things after that? Or was it just kind of just zeitgeist for a while and you were focused on that? Or did you was it like an immediate springboard to to other things? Um, I don't know if it was immediate, but it was pretty quick. Mm-hmm. I'd say within a few months, I was already trying to find the reports and trying to read up on some of that stuff. Uh, Loose Change was another big one. And it's funny because, you know, I, you've talked with some other people in the movement before who, who whose views have evolved and changed over time, and I'm no different. And, you know, at first, honestly, I have to admit, at first I was kind of getting sucked into some of this nonsense that's in Loose Change. And after doing some research and listening to some other people, I was like, you know, these Loose Change films, they have a lot of mistakes, in them, especially the early ones. You got to really be careful. I, I say this all the time to people. When you're in the 9-11 truth movement, you're surrounded by BS from all sides because you got the official <laughs> BS and then the so-called 9-11 truth BS. <laughs> so how do, you, how do you go about deciding what's, the, what's BS and what isn't BS then? If you've got BS on all sides... You can't say because it's on one side or the other, it's BS. You have to look at the thing itself and and decide. So what, what, what do you actually do when you're trying to decide whether something is BS or not? Part of the answer to that is I'm not always completely sure. Yeah. But what I try to do is I try to listen to experts on both sides and then use my own intelligence to see which one of those things seems more plausible based on either common sense or what I know about science, which isn't a tremendous amount. And I try to keep my mind open to always accepting new information because I might 
you know, I'm sure you know that the human mind is notoriously terrible at physics. Things seem intuitive to you and they make sense, but if you do the calculations, you're completely wrong. Mm -hmm. So I try to to always keep an open mind and not try not to use intuition too much because intuitive thinking is not scientific thinking. Yeah. You know that the mind can play tricks on you and that physics is uh, not something that you can intuit uh, all the time. And yet you, you also say you use common sense. And this is something I, I hear a lot of people say. They say it's just common sense that the towers couldn't have collapsed in that way. Do you think there's like a bit of a like a conflict there in what you're saying in that like common sense in a way is intuition? Yeah, I suppose I suppose it could be, Mick. Yeah, I didn't realize that, but that is kind of a contradiction. Yeah, you're you're like a member of the nine eleven Truth community, and I guess you have been for quite a while. You said you like you started doing this like about ten years ago. What was like the first experience you had with kind of like organized you know, the community, the nine eleven community? Probably the event Justice in Focus in New York City in two thousand sixteen, which is the mm. event that produced the 9-11 Truth Action Project and the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry. Um, I had already been researching this stuff for a while by then, but I think that was my first real formal, you know, gathering. Was that the Architects and Engineers uh, organized that one? Yeah, it was AE and it was the Lawyers Committee also. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they they basically got a bunch of people up on stage and people gave like various presentations. Almost, It was almost like kind of like a a mock trial in a way, wasn't it? As I I remember. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, like they were calling all these witnesses uh, for the for the prosecution. A bit one-sided, you could say, if it was an actual trial, in that they were just they were calling people up who all believed that nine eleven was an inside job. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was my first or- uh, organized event. I also wanted to mention, um, you know, I, I mentioned to you before that I work for a crisis hotline, mm-hmm. and actually, nine eleven is part of what made our place of work what it is today. Because the hotline started in 1995, and it was six counselors at one table with six phones. And every call that came in, all six phones would ring, and people would just have an honor system as to who would take the next call. And the resource directory that they referred people to services was a paper listing of clinics alphabetically. Mm-hmm. Fast forward to 9-11. Obviously, there's a great need in the city for mental health and substance use help following the attacks. And we got a huge grant and expanded greatly. Today, we have over 100 counselors. We have a very elaborate, sophisticated queue system that distributes the calls. I manage the directory. It's no longer a paper directory. It's a, you know, online directory. Right. And so that, that influenced me as well. Were you working there the, the whole time? No, I started there in 2010. Which is uh, you know around the same time that you got interested in nine eleven truth. Is that kind of a yeah a coincidence, or was that just the type of thing that was ha- like change happening in your life at the time? No, I think that was just a coincidence. Right, because my friend had been bugging me to watch that film already for like three years. So uh, your friend, out of interest, like is is he still your friend? Is, does he still have the same uh, beliefs? Oh yeah, is he a member of the community? No, he doesn't really get active in it. I mean, he just has his own views on the side, but he doesn't. He's not really. He's not an organizer. He doesn't join groups or anything like that. Have his opinions about 9-11 changed over the years? I don't think so, actually. I think mine have more than his. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. And actually, what's interesting, too, is I'm not sure how familiar you are with the Zeitgeist film series, but 
there are two other films that came after that that have nothing to do with 9-11 that have to do with the zeitgeist movement. And I actually got pretty heavily involved in that for a while. And I still believe in the ideology, but I kind of gave up on trying to convince people of it. So what is the zeitgeist ideology? The zeitgeist ideology is apolitical. It is the view that instead of making decisions about society based on politics, which is someone's opinion, it should be based on science and research and facts. The current paradigm is kind of, well, uses money. The zeitgeist ideology proposes the end of money, which is a lofty goal, I know. Hmm. But it's achieved through technology, through the, using technology to produce goods, to relieve people of labor, basically. It's been summarized as the application of the scientific method towards social concern. That's sort of the gist of it. So who would, who would get to decide it, though? What do you mean? Like you say you, you would use science to decide like, you know, where things go and who gets what and things like that. But how would that actually work in practice, though? Would there be somebody, like a bunch of scientists, like making decisions? It's supposed to be a horizontal movement in which you don't really have a hierarchy. You know, I don't know to the extent that that's really possible, but I, I found that there are a lot of questions like that about the movement and problems and things that need to be worked out. But it's more the overall mm -hmm. approach and overall philosophy and view that I subscribe to. Just the philosophy of providing for human needs over, over money is very appealing to me. Yeah, well, it sounds great. But I think you know, it's one of those things that... Yeah, you know, people will say, "Well, communism sounded great too, because communism is about you know to each according to his needs and stuff like that." But mm -hmm. then in practice, it it, yeah. didn't, it didn't work out very well in in the various implementations. But I think yeah, the big problem with all these political systems is how do they work in practice? Yeah, because there's a the theory and there's the practice, right? Indeed, yeah. Getting back to nine eleven though, like you're a member of the the nine eleven Truth Action Project, is that correct? Yes. Okay. What what do you do? You, do you have do you do something there in particular? Yeah, I'm a coordinator of the New York City chapter, actually. And is that like kind of organizing meetings and things like that? Yeah. How many people do you have at those meetings? Oh, it's been dismal mm. recently. Two, three, four. Really? But the last meeting we had, we, last meeting we had about fifteen. Because we, what happened was we we did an event in All Souls Church in New York City, which featured a bunch of speakers from the Lawyers Committee for Night Living Inquiry. There was also that um, Askar Snyder. He, he was invited to present his paper at a very prestigious engineering conference in New York, but the U.S. government actually denied his visa. Wow. So he Skyped into our event, gave a little talk. We had some first responders as well. We had Christopher Joya, the, I'm sure you heard of, Chris Joy of the fire commissioner. Yeah, he's like a local fire commissioner at one of the New York fire departments. County, yeah. Long Island. Okay. So we had so what happened is we had this event there and it was very well attended. We had approximately three hundred people there. It was kind of standing room only. All right. And uh I helped organize that event actually. And we had over a hundred people sign up to want to be part of the, the Truth Action Project. So we contacted a bunch of those people, and in our last meeting, some of them showed up. One guy came from Rhode Island hmm. just to come to the meeting. It was probably the best meeting we've had in a long time. Even though there were only 10 to 15 people, that's that's a big turnout for us, actually. Right. Yeah. Um, I was kind of surprised it was so small, like, especially in, in New York. Well, you know, in New York, it's a 
as you could imagine, it's an extremely touchy subject yeah, in New definitely. York, and people have very, very strong feelings about it on both sides. I find it hard. I find it hard to talk to people about 9-11 in New York because of that emotional connection. I'm a little bit more removed from it because I, although I'm from New York, born and raised, I actually wasn't living here at the time of 9-11, and I didn't lose anybody in 9-11 mm. that was close to me. The only person I lost was a casual acquaintance who was on one of the planes actually wow yeah yeah i didn't know anybody i was i was in la at the time and i i remember there was people from the office at work who were supposed to be in the world trade center that day but they it was like they, that meeting was later in the day so they didn't show up so that was kind of like the closest that i came to any kind of personal connection is like just knowing people who kind of had a near miss and then just talking to people who were there uh, like, uh, yeah, when you know, when they came back, you know, obviously they were stuck in New York for a few days because of the air traffic shutdown, and then they came back a few mm -hmm. days later and told people about yeah. you know, what had transpired, how they got stuck, and you know, how they were going to be there, and their little personal stories of the chaos and everything. Yeah, it's interesting, like, you know, the size of the community. I don't want to like try to be, uh, I don't want to come across as I'm like trying to like belittle it, but it is interesting that there, there isn't that much public involvement when you look at like the the surveys of people like if you if you do surveys of american people and ask like you know do you think there should be another 9-11 investigation or things like that you usually get quite a a chunk of people on you know, do you think the american government is telling us everything about 9-11 yeah you'll get you'll get like a very large percentage of people I mean, not a majority but still quite a quite a lot but then you you get these meetings where you only get handfuls of people showing up and it seems like you know, people have these ideas, but it doesn't translate into action. Yeah, kind of like my friend who got me to watch Zeitgeist. He's never done anything towards right. the movement, to my knowledge. He just That's kind of what you and I were talking about the other day, where the difference between a cause and a hobby. You know, some people treat 9-11 as a hobby, kind of like people who read Civil War books and go to Civil War reenactments and stuff. It's yeah. like a hobby for them. They think it's really cool for some reason. And... People are like that with 9-11. I don't, I don't approach it that way. To me, it's, it's too important to just say like, oh, you know, my hobby is reading about 9-11. I want to translate it into some kind of action. Yeah, no, I can tell it's very important to you, like, you know, having the moments of silence there. And I would I imagine like, you know, because you get do you, in this the crisis hotline, like, and would you talk to people who, you know, 9-11 is a big part of like, you know, why they're calling or where, where they are, where they are yeah. in their life? Yeah, actually, there was, um, I remember taking a call from a woman once who was, for lack of a better word, freaking out about 9-11 yeah. and saying, like, I can't walk down the street and see Muslim people with their garb. It makes me get PTSD and mm. I'm afraid. And that's unfortunate. <laughs> this is really interesting, too. Obviously, I'm not going to name any names. Yeah, the yeah. hotline is confidential. But, but we had um, a gentleman who used to call every day. Wow. And as soon as you pick up the phone, he would just say, 9-11 was an inside job. And he'd start ranting and raving about it. I spoke to him a number of times, and this was not planned or arranged, but I went to that event at Cooper Union that we talked about a few uh -huh. minutes ago. And after the fact, he called the hotline again and told me that he was there <laughs> and told me, yeah, I was the guy with the black plastic bag putting all the DVDs in it. I'm like, oh, wow, I actually saw the guy buying DVDs okay. and books and actually kind of being annoying making kind of a, a ruckus with the bag and they had to ask him to be quiet <laughs> huh. yeah well i imagine you get you get all different types of people there 
we get all kinds of people. Nick, I'll be honest with you. I don't say this to, to be a jerk, but I actually dislike a large percentage of the people that I meet in the 9-11 truth movement, <laughs> to be honest. Hmm. Not all of them. I mean, I've met some, some really great level-headed, intelligent people, but I've also met a lot of people who just latch on to anything they hear on any of these films or whatever and just take it as dogma and get belligerent when you try to argue with them about it. We have one guy who comes to our meetings sometimes, and he's a, he's a no-planer, which I'm not. And one day he was telling me, it's physically impossible for a plane to penetrate the World Trade Center. And all yeah. I said to him was, okay, well, can you show me some calculations to substantiate that claim? And he just got really belligerent and started yelling at me. And, hmm. you know, and yeah, what is that? Come on. Yeah, I think that's like you know, kind of what we were saying earlier with common sense. Like some people think that it's it's obvious that a plane couldn't you know penetrate the World Trade Center because they think you know the outside was made of steel and the plane was made of aluminum and aluminum is softer than steel, therefore it couldn't go through the steel. Well, there's this little thing called velocity. Nick, a paint chip can crack a windshield if it's moving fast enough. Yeah, the the example I often give is uh, the ping pong ball. If you shoot a ping pong ball fast enough, it will go through a ping pong paddle. When obviously a ping yeah. pong paddle is designed very much to not have ping pong balls go through it. And it's, it's obviously a thousand times stronger <laughs> than a ping pong ball. But if you shoot a ping pong yeah. ball at, at uh, you know, supersonic speed, <clears throat> it will blow a neat little hole into the, yeah. uh, the ping pong uh, paddle. What's the formula? Force is, force equals mass times acceleration. Yeah, like F, F equals ma. But it's it's more about uh, uh, kinetic energy. Like mm -hmm. the the energy is uh, proportional to the mass times the square of the velocity. So if you go twice as fast, you've got four times as much energy. And when something hits something, that energy has to go somewhere. So a plane that weighs uh, whatever four hundred tons going at like four hundred to five hundred miles an hour has a vast amount of energy and when it hits the side of the building the energy has to go somewhere yeah i think you know people they do the common sense thing and, and they say it's obvious that this couldn't happen it looks like it, it just looks ridiculous it doesn't make any sense to physics but they, they don't go beyond the 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 base level they they just take that first thing and then they stop at that point, mm -hmm. and then if you try to raise more objections to their argument or, or show them something else, they just reject it because they've already arrived at the conclusion and they don't feel any need to go any further. So it makes it very, very difficult yeah. to communicate. It's frustrating. It's frustrating even for me, and I'm part of the movement. So I can't, I, I can't stand dealing with people like that. It's, it's, it's infuriating. You know what it is to me? It's kind of like um, winning a game because you cheated. Right, You didn't really win the game. So if we convince people of something and shut ourselves off to their questions and, and problems with it, it's kind of like winning the debate by cheating. You didn't really win. Yeah. I've actually had people, like, you know, they make essentially semantic arguments. Like they will say chemtrails are real because uh, jet engine exhaust has chemicals in it and it leaves trails sometimes, and that must be a chemtrail because it's a chemical trail. Therefore, chemtrails are real. <laughs> So, yeah, it's, it's almost like they're more That's interested funny. in winning the argument by some kind of semantic thing than they are in actually discovering what's actually going on. It's it's almost like a kind of a, a contest or a game to try to uh, decide who who wins. Yeah, there's a lot of that going on with with these nine eleven debates, and not to not to pick on you, but 
you're kind of unique to me in, in, as a debunker because a lot of debunkers, if they were going to have me on a show like this or some a podcast like this, the goal isn't really to have a, an intelligent discussion and come to truth and understanding. The goal is just to make the 9-11 truther look like an idiot. Yeah, well, I certainly I would agree with that with a lot of the flat earth uh, debunking stuff. Yeah, I'm not comparing the two. I'm comparing the debunkers here. Like you yeah. see these these flat earth things, and they're just making fun of the flat earthers all the time. And you, they actually do very well on on YouTube. They have channels with quite a lot of views. But I don't know if there actually are that many nine eleven debunkers nowadays. I mean, do you do you know of anybody who does like nine eleven debunking talk shows or podcasts or anything like that? Because I'm not really familiar with uh, with yeah, any. Yeah, I guess. I guess if you asked me that a few years ago, I'd probably say, yeah, there's a whole bunch of them who have kind of died down a little bit. I mean, we had Popular Mechanics. We had um, the guy, uh, what's his name, Ronald Wick. We had, um, excuse me. There's a, there's a thing. There's a thing in the movement. This inability to let go of something when it's been demonstrated to be false. An example would be the Pentagon, right? We got the sense that a plane didn't hit the Pentagon because the hole is too small. And I mean, just look at the pictures. That's just a misleading picture. If you really look at the the broad spectrum of the photos that are taken there, that gash is like a hundred feet wide. That's very interesting. I was actually I was going to ask you specifically about that that thing because it's something that comes up a lot. It's like people say the hole in the Pentagon was too small. You hear this a lot. You hear it over and over from people who don't think that a, a plane hit the, the Pentagon. And then you share them the pictures of it, and you share them like the the bits on either side where the wings hit the column, and they'll reject it. And it's, it's kind of hard to know what to do with someone who, even when you're showing them something like that, you show them the actual plane overlaid uh, with the hole, and you show that it could quite easily have, have, have fit through the hole with the ends of the wings obviously snapped off. Yeah. Do you, do you talk to people who are like no plane hit the Pentagon type people, you know, within the community? Yeah, it's it's frustrating because they they just don't listen to reason. They just cling to that belief like it's it's crazy. And you know, here's here's another observation I have. The truthers want it both ways. They cite the testimony of Norman Mineta as evidence of a stand down of a plane approaching the Pentagon, but then they say there was no plane. So which is it? <laughs> right? I mean. Uh, There's a famous conspiracy theory study, I think, that w- where people were asked about various conspiracy theories and asked which ones they believed. I can't remember who it was exactly, but let's say it was JFK. Like, they said, like, one theory is that JFK faked his own death and is still alive. And the other theory is that uh, JFK was assassinated by the CIA. I think it was actually about somebody else, but it's the same same basic thing. Like this person was, you know, there was two theories about this person, one in which he was, he was dead and one in which he was still alive. And they were asked how much they believed either of these theories. And they were about 90% for both theories, which means that they simultaneously believed it was highly plausible that he faked his death and highly plausible, like almost certain, that uh, he, he, he was dead. So they they kind of simultaneously <laughs> believe someone it was like Schrodinger's conspiracy theory, but, but yeah, you you get people wanting to believe things because they are they fit the world view, even if they don't fit each other. If they, if you can, they could believe ten different things, they don't have to fit together. But if each individually fits the world view, 
then that one thing by itself becomes uh, uh, yeah attractive to mm. them, and it doesn't matter that it it, it contradicts with with other things uh, in in their belief system. You know, there are people. I'm not going to mention any names here, but there are people very high up in the 9/11 Truth Movement who still. I'm not talking about just your average Joe Truther from down the block. I'm talking about some of the big names in the movement that you've heard of, yeah. who have still pushed this missile hit the Pentagon theory and have ostracized other people in the movement for not agreeing with that. And that's really reprehensible to me, especially since some of those people who have been ostracized for not believing that have more technical credentials and knowledge than the people who are ostracizing them. Yeah. Oh, I know. Like David Chandler is someone who uh, does think a plane hit the Pentagon. He's the guy who's he's a former high school physics teacher who is famous in the 9-11 community because he brought it to NIST's attention that there was a segment of free fall uh, in the collapse of World Trade Center Building 7. And then uh, NIST uh, changed their report to include that, uh, that more detailed breakdown of the collapse to include the free fall segment. He's you know, famous for that, but recently he spent a lot of time debunking the idea that no plane hit the Pentagon, which is really interesting. Yeah, it, and, it, and he has been ostracized for that. Yeah, by the movement, and that to me is is sad. It's really sad. I mean, you got a guy here who's basically a rock star in the nine eleven truth movement, and then they're ostracizing him for being truthful about the Pentagon. <laughs> And some of the people that are responsible for that ostracizing of him, like I said, I'm not going to name their names, but they're pretty high up in the movement, and that's you know that's disturbing to me. That's really disturbing to me. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I don't want to like you know dig into that in terms of like you know naming names, but like the the lawyers committee, they they recently published I think a YouTube video about Flight 93 and how they thought it was shot down. Flight 93 is the plane that crashed into the fields in Shanksville. Um, buried itself in the ground, uh, but a lot of people think that's it. Also, is very suspicious. You know, t- to my mind, it's like you know, similar thing to the Pentagon. It just it, it looks odd because mm-hmm. it was going so fast, yeah. and it looks like a small hole when it was just buried itself underground. But there's like a few things that people bring up, like they say, oh, there was debris found found miles away and things like that, and they say that means yeah. that it was probably probably shut da- shot down. I haven't researched Flight 93, so I don't. I don't really make assertions about it. Mm. My suspicion is that it was shot down, but I don't say that with any conviction really because I haven't researched it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the thing I, I always say to people, if, if you think it was shot down, look at other planes that have been shot down. When a plane gets shot down, it actually disintegrates in the air and the debris is spread over many, many square miles. If you remember, a plane was shot down over the Ukraine, probably by the Russians, uh, a few years ago, and you, there's lots of pictures of that, and you can see what happens when a plane actually gets shot down, and it, it mm. doesn't look like a hole in the ground. You know, you, hey, oh, let, let, me, let me ask you something about Shanksville, and I'm just I'm just asking. I'm not. I don't know the answer. I'm not pretending I know the answer. It's not a rhetorical question. I'm looking for the answer. Mm-hmm. What do you make of this um, quote from Wally Miller that's often thrown around the coroner? Yeah. where he says he didn't see a single drop of blood, there were no bodies. I heard that he came out later and said that he was not misquoted, but he was misrepresented. I'm just curious, what is, do you know anything about that? Yeah, no, I, I don't know the specifics of it, but you know, taken by, even by, just taken by itself, it doesn't sound that uh, out of place to me because you've got to remember what happened to the plane. 
is, is it wasn't a typical pr- plane crash. You know, a normal plane crash, the plane breaks up as it's hitting the ground at fairly low speed and it's going like parallel to the ground. And so you get bodies and body parts scattered everywhere. Uh, what mm-hmm. happened here is uh, the plane went almost straight down, at like I think at like a 50 degree angle or something like that. And it buried itself in the ground and the, the fuselage was all compressed, uh, like, you know, like stomping on a, a Coke can type thing, uh, except mm-hmm. you know, horrible to think like with, with people inside. And so like, Everything pretty much ended up underground. There weren't wow. your bodies being thrown free like you would think of in a, in a, a small plane crash or a, a plane being uh, shot down. Uh, there was a mm-hmm. plane crash in uh, Iran yesterday, and there's, yeah, there's footage Iran, right? of that, and you you see you know intact bodies because essentially it it wasn't flown. To, into the ground at high speed, it just it just crashed. And when planes crash, it usually means that they're going below the aerodynamic speed, uh, which for a plane is like about 150 miles an hour, something like that. Uh, below that, they're going to stall and fall out of the sky. So either it's mm-hmm. you know they have some kind of uh, equipment failure which makes them stall and fall out of the sky, or they're they're, they're hit by something and they they break up in the sky. But either way, like it's a difference between a 500 mile per hour crash straight down. And a 100 mile per hour crash is is quite substantial. Like in the in the one, you get the, this thing where the plane just sp- like penetrates into pretty much whatever it uh, it hits, and in the other, you get it just break- breaking up, and you get you will get intact bodies, uh, yeah. and just basically laying around. So there's there's a huge difference. So you know his his statement, this coroner's statement, is just what he said about what. He, he saw when he first arrived at the scene. He essentially saw what other people saw and what you see in the pictures, which is a big hole in the ground. And the plane and the bodies were in that hole. So he would see yeah. all the body parts later, obviously, when they were dug out. And you know, probably wouldn't take that much digging to get to the first ones. But you know, the first day when he arrived there, that's what he saw. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about the World Trade Center, Mick. Sure. I don't know much about Flight 93. I don't want to spend too much time on that. But um, here's something that's kind of interesting to me, and, and maybe you can you can give me your your thoughts on this, your your response. I'm sure everybody's heard about interview with John Skilling in the Seattle Times, right, from 1993. Uh, the one where he said that it, the buildings were designed to withstand the plane. Yes. Okay. So, so in addition to that, I've seen multiple clips, video clips from way before 9-11. Mm-hmm. There's a video from the late 70s or early 80s where a guy explained what would happen if a plane hit the Twin Towers and how it's an intense grid, kind of like a mosquito net. Yeah. And the plane is just a pencil puncturing that net. It really does nothing to the integrity of the structure. It's interesting to me that you're hearing this from multiple sources, like so long before 9-11. Mm-hmm kind of lends some credibility to it to me. Well, it's true, though. I mean, it's very, very true. That's, and that's what happened. If you think think to the videos of the planes hitting the World Trade Center, they just, you know, from a distance, it almost looks like they melted into them. When you, when you see it closer up, you see that the hole that they formed. But that's really what happened. The structure of the building did what it was supposed to do, what it was designed to do, which is withstand an impact like that. And, and it did. It, John Skilling took the fire into account as well. The exact quote, I believe, is 
The biggest problem would be that all the p- fuel from the plane would dump into the building. If that yeah. happened, there would be a horrendous fire. A lot of people would be killed, but the building structure would still be there. Yeah. So he was right about the first thing and that the building was, uh, it would withstand the impact. And that's a fairly straightforward thing to, to calculate because you're just talking about an instantaneous redistribution of loads so that when the planes hit the buildings, they, they swayed a bit from one side to the other. I think the top of the building, mm-hmm. now they calculated it probably moved like like nine inches or so. And it yeah, continued to sway a little bit. I believe that there are reports of people saying the building was swaying. But that that was fine. Yeah, that, that all worked. Uh, what didn't work was the fire ended up doing more damage than I guess they thought. Now, I've seen a clip of Shyam Sundar uh-huh. saying the buildings wouldn't have collapsed from the planes and the fires and the reason that they did was because the fireproofing was dislodged yeah but i've never really come across any proof of that claim that the fireproofing was dislodged and i heard a pretty interesting argument against it which was related to what you were talking about with the building swing mm-hmm. and so the the eyewitness testimony is that the building didn't kind of vibrate so much as it swayed all the way to one side and then swayed back the other way rather slowly well that's what you would expect so Right. Yeah, if you sweep floors away, you're not, you know, you're not going to get some kind of sudden movement of the entire tower. I wouldn't expect the whole building to suddenly shift to one side. That doesn't make any sense at all because the building's so heavy, and the plane, you know, is is a tiny fraction of of that that amount. You think if you you'd have to imagine like a, I don't know, a, a two hundred pound window screen, and then you poke a pen through it. By say throwing the pen at this two hundred pound window screen, yeah, it can penetrate it, but it's not going to make it move. Right, right. So, but you, you're asking about the dislodging of the the fireproofing. Now, all all steel frame buildings have to have fireproofing around the steel, otherwise they're extraordinarily vulnerable to fire because uh, a steel beam can heat up in a, you know a matter of minutes. Uh, with a strong enough fire, mm-hmm. and, it, uh, and it's, once it's heated up, it loses all its strength and fails. So they all have this fireproofing on. So I've heard Richard Gage ask this question, and his response was unimpressive. But the the question was, you know, if if steel can can handle fire, why do we bother using fireproofing, Richard? And he's he didn't really have an answer for that. But my question then becomes, you know, this, these the fireproofing that's used on these buildings typically gives you about two to three hours, right? Uh-huh. So what about these buildings that have burned for like eight, 17, 18, 20 hours? Surely the fireproofing is not a factor after the first few hours, and yet the building continues to burn like a torch for several more hours and didn't collapse. Yeah. Usually what happens is the the fire is moving from one part of the building to another. You can't really have a, mm-hmm. a building, uh, any fire burning in one spot for five hours. Uh, right, so it's it, like twenty minutes. Yeah. I think you have a you have and a smaller fire. Yeah. Now, yeah, obviously that will raise questions when we get to a World Trade Center Building Seven. But uh, yeah, when you see these building fires, they typically don't like burn for that long. In underneath one particular beam, they'll move from mm-hmm. one one spot to another. Now, World Trade Center Seven, which is the one people like to focus on, you definitely you can yeah ask. Why did that one collapse when no other uh, building in history has collapsed? Well, it's really kind of a set of extraordinary circumstances that caused it to collapse. Like 
first of all, World Trade Center 1, the North Tower, basically uh, collapsed two blocks away from it, uh, took out most of the windows on the south side and did uh, quite a chunk of damage to it and set a whole bunch of fires throughout the building. Well, the, the NIST report on Building 7, the final report, states that neither the damage from World Trade Center 1 nor the fuel tanks in the bottom played any kind of significant role in the collapse. Yeah, but the damage from World Trade Center 1 is what caused the fires. And it, it wasn't it wasn't as if that was the only thing that was going on that day. There were significant challenges in fighting the fire uh, by the firefighters. And of course, they eventually they uh, they pulled out of the, uh, of the thing. But... All right, I got to ask you about this, Nick. And before I do, I'm going to preface it by saying that I'm well aware that eyewitness testimony is probably the weakest form of evidence there is, but it is admissible in the court of law. What do you make of this claim from Willie Rodriguez and about 20 other eyewitnesses to an explosion in the basement of the North Tower before the plane hit? He gives a quite a detailed yeah. account of that. And if you watch the footage from the Norday Brothers documentary or any of the documentaries, look at the lobby in the North Tower, the Marble walls are blown off. Uh -huh. the, the windows, three-inch glass, yeah. three-inch thick glass is blown out. And I think the I think the official explanation is that it's the jet fuel pouring down the elevator shafts. But I have a problem with that theory. Uh -huh. And and I didn't come up with this on my own. It's, it's actually in that film, The New Pearl Harbor. But it makes sense to me is that they're not taking into account the volumes involved there. The the, the, the twin tower is like something like a million cubic yards or cubic feet or something like that. And the jet fuel, first of all, there's 10,000 gallons in each plane, right? Uh -huh. Time of impact. Much of that is burned off initially in the, in the fireball when it hits the tower. Some of it has to be sprayed around and start the fires. Sure. So there's not really a whole lot of jet fuel left over to be pouring down a thousand feet. Well, how much do you and, think you would be destroying the, Hmm. How much do you think you would need? Uh, the film shows an in-scale graphic of what the volume of the jet fuel looks like next to the volume of the tower, and it's right. kind Look, of staggering. Like, we're talking here about the um, the explosion in the lobby. Uh, this is like another bit of nine eleven truth. Uh, you know, something that's commonly uh, commonly repeated. That there's this problem with uh, why was there an explosion in the lobby? And the idea, I guess, is that there was perhaps I don't know. I'm not sure what. People are suggesting what happened, like there was a one of the pre-planted explosives went off too early or something like that, or was it? No, the, the allegation is that, okay, when you, when you do a controlled demolition, right? Uh -huh. Not just the World Trade Center, but any building has a large redundancy factor. So you can't just do the final sequence right away and bring the building down. There's usually a series of preliminary explosions that's necessary to weaken the building. Uh -huh. And the theory is that Obviously, they weren't going to detonate those all next to each other, so they spaced them out. I guess, I don't know if they miscalculated the time and that one went off too early, but that, that's, that's the allegation about the, the explosions that happened before. Does that, does that make sense to you? Do you think that's a good theory? It's worth consideration. There are some videos of controlled demolitions where they show that process. But that was about, an, you like, about an hour before the building actually collapsed, though. I mean, you don't see controlled demolitions where they do one explosion and then wait an hour and then bring the building down. 
No, I mean, everybody knows that if these were controlled demolitions, they were obviously unique. And I mean, I don't, I don't think, yeah. I don't think if World Trade Center 7 was a demolition, I think well, it would have been the biggest building ever demolished. Let's, let's see. Maybe we could do some like, like real time debunking here. Like, uh, you know, you, you hear about this, this thing, like the jet fuel down the elevator shaft and there wouldn't be enough jet fuel to cause an explosion to cause the damage in, uh, in in the lobby so mm-hmm. let's say let's try to figure out uh how much jet fuel would be needed uh, it probably wouldn't be that difficult like let's say say we replace the jet fuel with dynamite how many sticks of dynamite would it take to i think do, the difference do that between damage those is that dynamite just explodes if jet fuel is pouring down it's probably already on fire and already burning as it's coming down the elevator shaft well, so it would, it would be like essentially a fuel air explosion where the it would be atomized as it came down the shaft and then ignited when it uh, you know got to the bottom and, and it, it would i guess like the 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 flame front would come down the shaft all the way down there'd be a big explosion of the fuel at the bottom of the shaft but, you know, let's say like some fuel got to the bottom and it was splashing around. So it's sort of kind of all up in the air. Uh, you know, it fell from the top. So it's always going to be on these tiny drops by the time it gets to the bottom. But it's just, let's just do a real simple energy calculation. I'm going to look up, uh, energy, oh, fuel air explosions. You know how cars work. They, no, uh, I don't know anything about cars. <laughs> well, you, you, you see, no, I'm, not, I'm not joking. I really don't. No, no, but you, you will have seen at least like the basic. Uh, you know, you, you know, a car runs on gasoline, right? Yeah, and the gasoline uh, is burnt in the engine, and it pushes the cylinders around. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the way it it pushes the cylinders, which rotates the the crankshaft, which rotates the the real the wheel, which rotates the, the main axle, is they basically use tiny little explosions. And they only use a really, really small amount of of gasoline uh, at once. Like each time the engine goes, yeah, each one of those little pops in a, a car engine is is a, a, essentially an explosion. And you know, a car engine can last a really, really long time on just one one gallon uh, of gasoline. Yeah, you could actually sit and idle your engine for like you know probably like. Uh, uh, several hours on on one gallon, uh, depending on how efficient mm-hmm. you are, and so it's actually explosions going off constantly. Now, if you were to make essentially like a really really big car cylinder and get the gasoline into this this car cylinder in a way that it was kind of uh, kind of atomized in the same way it is like when it's sprayed in into a, a car cylinder engine, you could think of the the lift shaft of the World Trade Center as being like that, that car cylinder. And when this jet fuel, which is essentially very similar to gasoline, gets to the bottom of this, uh, this cylinder, the, the, the lift shaft, and then gets ignited, you've got an explosion like a car cylinder, except a much bigger one. Instead of it being like, you know, five cubic inches or something. It's just a, uh, it's this, this huge, you know, several cubic feet, you know, hundreds of cubic feet. So you get this, this, this very, very large explosion from a, a relatively small amount of gasoline. Now, I don't know if that sounds, does that sound like a bit of hand waving to you or, uh, does it make any sense? 
It's not that it's hand waving. It's just a little bit over my head. All right. Uh, <laughs> have you ever heard of uh, a flower explosion? A what? A flower explosion, like the flower that you make bread with. No, no. This is something Never that happens that. sometimes in in mills. Uh, if the flower gets in the air and uh, it's just kind of suspended in the air like all this dust, if there's a spark, it can actually explode. And sometimes you, you get these uh, flower mills uh, exploding just from flour in the air. It's uh, If you get a substance that burns and you, you have it atomized, you know, so it's kind of like a spray, like an aerosol spray in the air, and then you ignite it, it burns very, very rapidly. Essentially, it explodes. An explosion is just rapid combustion. So mm -hmm. it doesn't actually take very much uh, jet fuel to create a large explosion, especially if it's been atomized by, say, falling down uh, a lift shaft. Uh, and the explosion itself actually further atomizes more stuff around it, and that's why you get these, these big fireball explosions. And you don't actually need that much. I think a gallon of jet fuel, I looked it up a while ago, but I, I can't find it right now, is equivalent to something like five sticks of dynamite. And you know how much damage you can do with like a few sticks of dynamite. So even if something yeah. as small as say 10 gallons of jet fuel made it to the bottom of that, uh, that shaft, it could do an explosion equivalent to uh, say 50 sticks of dynamite, like a, like a big a crate of dynamite essentially, which I think, uh, you know, you've seen enough movies to know that a crate of dynamite is enough to do quite a lot of damage. Hey, Mick, if you have any um, sources or, or calculations on there, send them to me, please. I'd like to review it. Yeah, so I just, I just looked up, uh, I just found a source. It's actually a single, it says here, a single gallon of gasoline has the explosive energy of 83 sticks of dynamite. Wow. And this is, uh, this is actually uh, from an article for farmers, like saying they have to be careful about empty containers. It's actually got gasoline in it still. You know, like in the vapor form, a 250 gallon fuel tank that has one gallon of residual gasoline in it can, uh, can, you know, if it vaporizes and then ignites in that situation, it, it's the explosive energy of 83 sticks of dynamite. I will send you the link to that, but it's the Purdue News and the article is titled Farmers Should Use Extra Caution with Gasoline. So that's just one, one gallon. I thought it was far less than that. I'm quite surprised actually. 83 hmm. sticks of dynamite. Thank you for yeah. that information. Um, this, this is what Willie Rodriguez said. This is curious to me. He said, I don't remember the exact words at the, at the beginning of the quote, but he said he was, you know, going about his business that day when he heard an ex when there was an explosion so hard that it pushed him upwards and it came from the B2 level or the B3 level. And he thought that a generator had exploded. Mm -hmm. And when he went to verbalize that thought, he heard, boom, the impact of the plane on the top. And he said, now, 20 years working in the building, you know the difference between these two different events. One explosion from the bottom first that pushed me upwards and then the plane on the top. Yeah, I, I, uh, I think there's a number of things you can talk about there. Like, when did he first tell that story? I don't know the answer yeah, to that. Yeah, I mean, if he told it even, like, six months afterwards, is he remembering it correctly? Like, you know, like... When things happen, you can very easily confuse the order in which things happened. 
uh, you know, as you get older, <laughs> you, uh, I'm talking about myself here, not him. Uh, <laughs> you, you recognize that your memory isn't perfect. So it could be that on the day he experienced explosions and noises and things like that. And obviously he was an extraordinarily stressful situation and he didn't stop to think, oh, I wonder why it happened in that order. Cause he, he had no idea what was actually happening. He didn't, right, right. he didn't like think, oh, that's the plane hitting the building because he didn't know a plane was hitting the building. So how is he knowing what order things actually happened in if he doesn't know what's actually going on? I think basically what you got there is someone who just doesn't remember the exact order of things happening. And then later thinks he remembered that and he became convinced that that's what happened. I actually interviewed uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, one of the world's leading experts on false memories. Her name is Elizabeth Loftus. I know that name. I have two degrees in psychology, so I think, I think right. she came up at some point in my studies. Yeah, yeah no, she probably would because she's been uh, she's been studying this type of thing for a long time, and she she basically demonstrates just how easy it is for people to f- form false memories. You know, people can have false memories implanted deliberately, but they can also just form on their own, and and it's not just almost like not a false memory, like not remembering what order something happened in. Like, did I do this before I did this? You know, you, you go on a, a vacation, you can't remember, like, did I go to this this spot before I went to that spot? You don't always remember which order you did things in. Yeah, you know, even even personally, I have memories of my that I from my own past that I know are wrong. Right, Cause yeah. Because I, I was like, I remember doing this and then doing this. And then when I look at the the actual facts of the circumstances, well, I didn't even know that person at that time, so it couldn't have been, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, I sometimes catch myself almost like falling into these false memories. Like, I think, oh, yeah, I can, no, I don't, that didn't actually happen. So, yeah, <laughs> things, you could, but once you start, if you don't catch yourself, or if you don't have some way of verifying, you know, what actually happened, then, you know, you get stuck with this false memory. And I think yeah. if, that's probably what happened to, to this guy. Maybe it or it could be it could be like another alternative is that he didn't actually hear the plane hit the building, and that what he heard uh first was the explosion, you know the fuel went down, and the second thing he heard was something like an elevated car falling from the top of the building and uh, impacting the bottom of the building. Let's talk about Larry Silverstein. Larry Silverstein acquired the World Trade Center. He already owned Building 7, but he acquired the towers, I think, something like six weeks before 9-11. And, you know, a lot is made about this insurance policy that he took out. Mm-hmm. And to my mind, eh, you know, the World Trade Center was attacked in 1993, so it's not completely implausible that somebody would take out an insurance policy yeah. regarding terrorism, being that the building was already attacked once before. What puzzles me about that is not so much the insurance policy by itself. Why did he even acquire the truck towers to begin with for any reason? I mean, they were they were a disaster. They were a, more of a liability than they were a commodity at that point with all the asbestos. And I don't know. Like, <laughs> I'm not a real estate expert. You should ask Donald Trump. Uh, <laughs> he was a New York real that estate guy. That means I have to talk to Donald Trump. No, thank you. <laughs> I, I think uh, he acquired them because he thought he could make money. Uh, so obviously, he there was some path to making money that he he had seen, he had 
his, his accountants had calculated would happen. Like he probably got them for a, a reasonably cheap price. They they were being rented out, so there was like a you know this this lot this income from them, and they did have retainable value, so they could be resold in the future. And they they did have like obviously they had problems with asbestos and stuff like that, uh, but that was being remediated. I mean, I don't know exactly what the the numbers are. They put the cost of the of the removal over a billion dollars. Who did? Uh, I think the Port Authority. Yeah. So, I mean, how how much would the World Trade Center be worth now if it was still standing and had all the uh, had all the as- asbestos removed? Hmm, I don't know. I mean, it probably is quite a valuable building, really. I mean, the World Trade Center one now is uh, probably costs worth well over a billion dollars. So I think you know when when you buy a building, you're looking at the thirty to fifty year timeline of making money from it. You're not buying mm-hmm. a building just thinking that you know it's going to increase in value. Either it's part of some great satanic plot, or his accountants figured out some way of making money from it. Yes, I guess so. Yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say satanic there. It just it just popped out. It was just uh, some 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 uh, I don't know uh, evil plot. Let's say that. But yeah, so I, I think I don't, I don't think that's okay. I had a guy I had a guy in the 9/11 Truth Movement recently trying to convince me that 9/11 was a satanic cult operation yeah. and that. The numbers of all the flight numbers and everything are a satanic code. For yeah. this. And I was like, oh, yeah. Do you, is that is that like? I mean, that's not typical. Obviously, like, most people are not like that. But you probably nah. get a few people because you know, like you say, the the movement's kind of being, I don't know, kind of dying off to a degree. And so, I wonder if that kind of like makes it filter down a little bit more to the more hardline people. Uh, the, the the more eccentric people. Yeah, one of my theories is that certain people are just so desperate to have people in the movement that agree with them that they open their arms to anybody, no matter how wacky their theories are. Yeah, it's my theory. Hey, I wanted to ask you about something uh, I saw on the nine eleven Truth Action Project uh, website. They have this section called Doctor T Ruth, mental health and nine eleven. It's got a bunch of kind of interesting articles. There's an article, uh, I think, Dr. T. Ruth on misinformation and disinformation. And it's it's actually kind of an interesting article because it's it's talking about how you need to have respect for other people and you need to be polite when discussing topics with them. And, uh, you know, you, you don't want to get angry and start shouting at them and accusing them of being, being shills. I actually thought it was like a, a pretty good article uh, in the, the general the general uh, gist of it because it's kind of like what I say. I, I, I tell people that you know you need to be respectful of people mm. when you're talking to them, and you you don't want to get angry, and that you you got to be you know open minded. You don't uh, want to be condescending either. Yeah, yeah. Like you want to have a genuine discussion with them. Uh, it's interesting. Yeah, this this guy who wrote it uh, what was his name, Doctor. Is he a doctor? Uh, Christopher Gruner. Do you know? Do you know this person? No, I don't. Yeah, this is a mental health counselor. Hmm. But it, I've not. I've not explored that section of the website. To be honest okay. with you. Okay. Yeah. But I probably will. Yeah, it was, it was interesting because it was a fairly uh, prominent part 
of the website. Like if you go to 911tap.org, uh, mm-hmm. on the, the top, there's like a little menu and it says like, uh, about us, media contact us and then Dr. T Ruth. So there's like, you know, six things on the top and that's like right there in the middle of it. Uh, and, and the first thing yeah, I see, actually, I'm not even looking at that page, but the, the first thing on the non Ivan truth homepage is, uh, psychological warfare. It, it seems like there's a lot of focus on psychology. Uh, do you get that, that sense that? people talk about that or, or do you think it's still more about the physics than that, than that? I think it's still more about the physics. I don't, I don't come across too much talk about mental health and psychology in, in my travels anyway. Yeah. I, I, I saw, a, um, I guess a YouTube video a while back and it was basically diagnosing, uh, debunkers like myself as being mentally ill because we're <laughs> unable to open our eyes to the reality of 9-11. To be fair, we've been painted by, with that brush for years. <laughs> yeah, but do you actually think it's true in the other direction, though? <laughs> well, uh, as a mental health professional or a former mental health professional, and as a person who has myself a schizophrenia spectrum disorder, there's definitely mental illness on both sides. And, and mm-hmm. if, you know, if you look for it, you'll find it. I mean, I, I, I try not to diagnose people in my head, but yeah, yeah. I've cert- certainly come across plenty of people in the movement that I'm like, Oh boy. <laughs> yeah. Well, you I mean, you come across people in normal life who, uh, you think that, but, uh, I guess they, they stand out more. Like I, I remember going to a, a chemtrails conference a few years ago and you, most of the people there are just like, you know, nice, normal people. Uh, who happen to believe in chemtrails, but there's also a few kind of kooky people uh, there yeah. as well. So I think, you know, in any, you know, if you go to a football game, you're going to see some crazy people. It, yeah, yeah. I, I don't like the the idea that some people have, like of saying that just because someone's a 9-11 truther, that means they're a crazy person or that they're insane or men- mentally ill or something. I think, you know, the vast right, majority I mean- of people are just regular people who in my mind are just mistaken in their beliefs. I would agree with that. I would agree with that in both directions. Um, I don't. I don't think I'm crazy. I know I have a diagnosis, but I take my medication. I do very well. I don't have any symptoms really at this point. Yeah, the, don't seem crazy to me. The popular mechanics might have a different take on it. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, what what do you actually believe about nine eleven that you think other people might think is I don't know delusional? Do you have any extreme I mean, beliefs? What's the most extreme thing you actually personally believe rather than just simply having questions about? Hmm. I mean, controlled demolition is as far down the rabbit hole as, I've, as I go. Do you think there was a controlled demolition? I think there's a chance that there was a controlled demolition, a good chance. Like if you were to put your probability on a scale of, say, zero to 100, where 100 is you're completely sure there was controlled demolition, where would you say you were at? To be honest with you, Mick, it changes all the time. Hmm. And w- what happens with me is I ex- I try to expose myself to as much information as I can on both sides of the debate, and I end up kind of flip-flopping. I'll <laughs> see something or hear something or read something and go, that's it. It was a controlled demolition for sure. And then all I'll right. see something else on the other side and go, wait, no, it wasn't. <laughs> you know, you can drive yourself a little nuts. So d- do you feel like you're you're less... Uh, believing, like, I don't know, like 2% less or something uh, after talking to me, or has it not changed you at all? 
Um, yeah, I mean, some of the responses you had to some of the, the questions I raised were seemed mm. pretty sound and uh, reasonable. I don't know if I agree with everything you said, but no, I wouldn't expect you to. Like, yeah, you can't. You can't just have like a you know one hour discussion and then have someone change their yeah. mind. That's not gonna gonna work. But yeah, there's, there's right, stuff right. you can you can talk about these things and. Yes, a lot of them is, is is kind of interpretation of things, though. Like, like yeah, that that guy who yeah. uh, remembered an explosion before he thinks the plane hit the building. Yeah, that's that's not something. It's not something. It's very intangible in a way. You can't really get your your yeah, your, your teeth it's, into well, it. It's it's eyewitness testimony, and that's it's not the best evidence. We know that. Yeah. But I don't want to discount it completely. Like I said, eyewitness testimony, it is admissible in a court of law. So there's some kind of credibility to eyewitness testimony. Yeah, but uh, actually, Elizabeth Loftus, one of the things she talks about a lot is she, she actually goes to trials as usually a, an expert witness for the defense to explain mm-hmm. how eyewitness testimony isn't as reliable as people think it is. And often people actually get get released and get uh, found not guilty uh, because of mm-hmm. her testimony, because the, the trial is based, uh, the, the accusation is based upon eyewitness testimony only. And it is something like, you know, this one person picks somebody out of a lineup and says, that's the guy. Uh, and that's all the evidence they have. And so she goes into the court and says, it's very easy to, for these memories oh, to, yeah. to be false. Or, or someone will say, I remember this happening. And someone else says they remember something else happening. And then, you know, she has to explain to the judge, there's no way of knowing which one of these things is correct. Uh, and both these people could genuinely be remembering it honestly, but incorrectly. Because the judge is thinking one of these people is lying, but actually it's just both of them had bad memories. Right. And Yes. So eyewitness testimony is memory. It's people like bringing their memory to a court and saying this is what I remember, and so just just because it's admissible doesn't mean it's actually any good. That's true. That's true. I have something to say. I have something to say about NIST too. Sure, go ahead. A lot of people think that the NIST report is is bogus. I have certainly felt that way at times myself, but I do not think I do not think that somebody from the government came and took Cheyenne Sunder and John Gross pulled them aside and said, listen, we blew up the World Trade Center and we need you to cover it up. I don't think that's what happened. I think when you work for any kind of agency and you do any of this kind of work, it goes without saying that you're not going to implicate your, your government or your agency or your people that you work for in anything wrong, any kind of wrongdoing ever. You know what I'm saying? And I'm not saying necessarily that these guys said, oh, it's a controlled demolition, but we better hush it up. I just think you don't even go there if you work for, you know, I work for an agency that's been investigated for a certain business practices and stuff like that. I'm not stupid. I know I'm not going to implicate them in some kind of wrongdoing if I want to keep my job. So, I don't, and in, gen, in general, I don't think every, there's this idea with conspiracy theories that mm-hmm. there's this vast conspiracy that everybody's in on it and everybody's deceiving everybody else and i don't think it necessarily has to be that way i don't think you have to really be in on it to be kind of complicit in it you're just you're just doing your job you're just trying to keep your job and not rock the boat but do you think like by the end of the investigation do you think that everybody who was investigating it knew that it was a controlled demolition 
No. Do you think anybody figured it out? Maybe, maybe. I'm sure you've seen those video clips of uh, David Chandler challenging the, the free fall. And I always kind of find it amusing, that part when, when Mr. Sundar is asked about free fall and he kind of trips over his own words for about 30 seconds before he says anything that makes any sense. And David Chandler says something like that, something like, whoa, that's the kind of response I get from a physics student when they haven't bothered <laughs> to open the book. Well, do you, was kind of funny. Do you I mean, think Shyam Sunder, the guy who led the NIST investigation, do you think he, do you think he knew that it, it was controlled demolition? Intuitively, maybe. So you think he felt that it was, but he didn't know it? I'm not sure, Mick. To be honest with you, it's it's hard to speculate about what's going on. And you think he would have more evidence available than anybody? So. What do architects and engineers know that he doesn't know? Right, right. Well, it's it's really difficult to speculate about what's going on in somebody else's head. You know what yeah. I mean? You can you can be suspicious. I'm suspicious of him, but I don't have proof that he lied or proof that he fabricated anything. It's just a suspicion. So, do you think, let's say, the FBI agents who investigated nine eleven, half of the FBI, at the cost of billions of dollars? was tasked with investigating 9-11 and tracking down the hijackers and everything and the sources of money and things like that. Do you think all those agents were fooled or, or just a percentage of them were fooled? I don't know anything about that part of the investigation. I haven't researched it. I don't know exactly what the FBI did or... Well... I don't really want to comment, speculate on that. Well, if you just assume like for a second that half the FBI was working for two years investigating 9-11. I mean, w would you be comfortable saying that that was true? I don't know. I don't even... I'm, the first time I heard that is from you, so... All right. Uh, well, it's in the... I guess all the, all the accounts I'm not of, saying you're wrong. No, I'm no, saying Yeah. I guess, how would you know that it's true? It's, it's a good... Kind of a good... <laughs> a good point. But obviously, lots of people work at the FBI. All the people who yeah. work at the FBI would know uh, roughly what people were working on, like they would say these teams were assigned to this. And yeah, we, there must have been people who thought they were investigating 9-11 who worked at the FBI. So mm -hmm. I guess my, the point I'm trying to get at is, was the entire FBI complicit or was there some kind of strange compartmentalization going on where there was this strange theater where they pretended to investigate don't know how many people were working at the FBI, but let's say it's like 10,000 or something, and 5,000 of them were working. Let's just look this up real quick. Let's, let's not uh, speculate when we can look things up. How many FBI mm -hmm. field agents are there? There's 35,000 people working at the FBI. And they said about, about half the people who worked at the FBI were working on 9-11. It was probably actually more than that, so... Because people would be rather, you know, reluctant to work on anything else. So what's half of 35,000? 17,000 people were working on the investigation of 9-11. How would, how would that work if, if it was a big government conspiracy and there were pre-planted explosives uh, in the building and that all had to be covered up? If you've got 17,000 people looking into this, isn't it kind of risky? It is. And it's, it's a valid question. I would, I can't 
prove any of that to you, but what I can say is provide you an example. The Manhattan Project involved over 100,000 people, and it was kept very secret for quite a while. It wasn't kept secret from the FBI investigation, though. There wasn't like a big investigation saying, why did this bomb go off? So let's say like, you know, the Hiroshima happened and no one knew why it happened. And the FBI says, oh, we've got to find out who dropped this atomic bomb. And they start looking into it. That's the kind of situation you're in after 9-11. Something big has happened. The FBI mm-hmm. uh, thinks they've got to try to figure out what it is. Now, the Manhattan Project with the atomic bomb development, the FBI's job is to protect the secrecy of that it's not their job to investigate it. It's their job to protect the secrecy. And it's, it's wartime. And uh, everybody knows that it's, it's top secret. It's not the same situation. You know, here we've got... That's a good point, Nick. We've got an actual investigation of something. Or we've got some kind of strange theater where 17,000 FBI agents are pretending to investigate. I just don't see how it could possibly work. I see what you're saying. It's a good point. I would I would need to know more about the FBI investigation and who did what and who was exactly looking into what and what they found in yeah. terms of uh, you know because it's really complicated it's really complicated. Yeah. I think there's a an article on the FBI page on that. I mean I'm going to look it up real quick. So what did FBI say about it? They say our ensuing investigations of the attacks of 9/11 codenamed Pentbomb was our largest investigation ever. At the peak of the case, more than half our agents worked to identify the hijackers and their sponsors, and with other agencies to head off any possible future attacks. We followed more than half a million investigative leads, including several hundred thousand tips from the public. The attack and the crash sites also represented the largest crime scene in FBI history. So, yes, yeah, so half of all their agents were working on uh, on that. Speaking of crime scenes, Nick, uh-huh. it's it's a federal offense to remove anything from a crime scene, even a matchbook. And yet a lot of the evidence in ground zero was destroyed and shipped overseas. And there was, there was some, something of an outcry from the engineering community about that. Yeah. But there were some statements. There was, but not because it was a crime scene. They wanted to investigate, uh, to see exactly why the buildings collapsed the way that they collapsed. I don't think there was actually mm-hmm. any outcry from anybody other than people who thought there was a controlled demolition about uh, crime scene contamination. Because what was happening, everybody assumed that the buildings had collapsed because of the planes hitting them and there being a big fire. And the priority initially was try to, f- to find survivors in the wreckage. And to do that, they had to move a whole bunch of steel out of the way so they could get in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe they were, they were hopeful that they were found survivors for a few days afterwards. Uh, it quickly became apparent that they weren't going to. They did dig a few people out, uh, the people stuck in the yeah. stairwell. But they didn't consider it to be a crime scene in the traditional sense of like somebody was murdered in their living room and there's blood splattered on the wall and there's footprints on the ground. The crime scene right. was in the cockpits of the planes. The crime was that these hijackers hijacked these planes and, f- and, f- and flew them into the buildings. That's what they considered the crime scene to actually be. And mm-hmm. the FBI says that like, the, the, the site is the crime scene. But that's like saying that uh, an entire town is a crime scene because a murder occurred in the, in the town. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it probably probably wouldn't say that. It's not a good analogy. Yeah, but you should read uh, read the accounts of people who worked on the World Trade Center site. There was uh, there's a good one by a guy called Douglas Friedman who I interviewed on the podcast a while back, and he talks Mm -hmm. about what the priorities were when they were cleaning up the site, and the number one priority after they got uh, done with rescue, the number one priority was recovery which was recovery of human remains. And that's pretty much mm-hmm. what everybody who was working on the site was really focusing on, was trying to rem- yeah. recover all the human remains as quickly as possible uh, so they could be you know, given back to the families of the, the people. And they, the mm-hmm. other people who worked there got extremely emotional about it. And every time they discovered a new body after a while, they would start having these processions where they would put the remains in a a wooden coffin and they would carry them out and salute them. Uh, but yeah, that's what was going on. They weren't trying to clean up the site to hide the steel or anything like that. They were removing the steel so they could remove the bodies. The steel well, wasn't... Why did they ship it overseas they didn't and melt ship, it down? They didn't ship they it overseas. It another- they did preserve it. They they took it. Most of it was taken to Fresh Kills landfill, and it sat there for quite a while. Not, not most of it. Some a little bit of it. No, a little bit was a little bit was uh, was stored. It was for long term. Uh, initially, like it was several weeks or months that it, it was there before it was moved away. Well, it's just, I guess details that we could actually look up. But uh, it, this whole thing about the the crime scene thing doesn't really make any sense to me. I mean, it makes sense to you because you think there might have been a crime of a controlled demolition. But everybody who was there on the day, all the people who were working there, thought that terrorists had hijacked planes and flown them into the buildings, which they had. And then they thought yeah. that the buildings had collapsed because of that. Yet no one even thought that the buildings had collapsed from explosives. So no one thought there was any reason to look for explosive residue or whatever they would, they would do or examine the steel for, for cutting and things like that. Mm-hmm. You're familiar with uh, Eric Lawyer, right? Um, He's the founder of Firefighters for 9-11 Truth. He talks about the NFPA standards for the investigations uh, of, of building failures. Yeah. Uh, the, the NFPA, the National Fire Protection Association. and seems pretty clear from what he's talking about that the standard procedure wasn't followed. And even if, you know, even if there's no reason to think there's a controlled demolition, don't we typically follow our procedures anyway? Don't we do due process? Like well, everybody knows that OJ Simpson killed those people. We still went, we still have the trial. <laughs> well, that's a little bit different. I was saying as there weren't any uh, <laughs> eyewitnesses to what happened, whereas everyone saw the planes fall into fly into the buildings and then the fires and then the collapses. But yeah, um, the, the, the standard procedure for investigating fires uh, has a consideration for investigating whether it was arson or not. Uh, but mm-hmm. I think, again, in this case, from everyone's point of view, the, the causes of the fire uh, were obvious. Planes flew into the building, planes full of fuel, and there was a big fuel air explosion, and fires started because planes flew into the building. So why would you I need an investigation? But the, 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 I, I they, they did. They did actually because the the guidelines uh, give essentially leeway to people to decide when to follow the guidelines. So if it's not necessary, like if it's so obvious that uh, it's it's not actually needed, 
Like if someone actually saw somebody light the Christmas tree on fire and uh, they have video of that's actually burning the house down, then they don't need to have an investigation to see if someone light the, lit the Christmas tree on fire. And same thing here. We saw what happened. Somebody flew planes into the buildings and that's why they caught on fire. And the fires burnt uh, very intensely for an hour and the, the buildings collapsed. That's what happened. Maybe in addition to that, there were some explosives, but no one thought that at the time. I wouldn't say no one thought that. Did you think that? A lot of people didn't think that, but you didn't think that. I mean, there's. I did. Well, I know that's not that that I thought it was explosive. I just thought it was really peculiar on that day, and I kind of just dismissed my concerns for a while. But I mean, there there's plenty of accounts of people on that day saying, "Oh, it looks like a controlled demolition. Oh, it looks like a implosion. Oh, it looks like a demolition crew came here." If you look at the news clips, plenty of people said that. Even some of the experts, Van Romero said that originally he retracted his statement. But he said that there's footage at ground zero of firefighters and and other people, first responders, saying, I think there was a bomb there. So I wouldn't say nobody thought that. Yeah, no, somebody somebody probably certainly did, I'm sure. But uh, what I'm talking about is the people who made the decision uh, or didn't make a decision to treat the scene as a crime scene. Like, who is going to make that decision? I guess it would be the, uh, I don't know, the chief fire, the head of the fire department at the time, whoever was there. Their priorities right then were rescuing people. They probably didn't even stop to think, like, is there the possibility that this building collapsed because there were explosives planted on the same floors that the plane hit and where the fires were? Yeah, even just saying it, it seems a little bit ridiculous. Like that there was there were bombs planted on the same floors that the planes hit. I don't think that's the allegation. Well, that's where the collapse started. Yes, yes. I think the allegation, if you watch, um, not that you're going to watch it, but if you watch <laughs> that new Pearl, Pearl Harbor film that I've mentioned, uh-huh. the allegation is that the core was taken out first, which means yeah. the explosives didn't necessarily have to be on the same floors as the plane. They were probably lower than that took the core out first and i saw a video the other day of somebody from fema was it gene corley maybe somebody from fema i think it was gene corley but maybe not showing that the antenna began to fall first before the rest of the building and he said the fema guy said this is an indication that the core collapsed first <laughs> yeah i think i've seen that i mean that's been knocking around for a long time the idea that uh, the core collapsed first but you know again there's lots of People have looked into the collapse of the World Trade Center. There's been like a, a number of studies done as to you know why it collapsed, and mm-hmm. it's it's not it's not hugely complicated in terms of like the the basic physics. What's complicated is knowing exactly what order things happened because we can't we don't know exactly what comms uh, failed first, so we're never going to know. Uh, but mm-hmm. th- the physics behind the collapse aren't hugely difficult to, in my mind. Like once once it started to collapse. There was no way of stopping it, and the combination of the damage and the fire seems sufficient to cause the uh, the original collapse. Again, I'm going to make reference to the new Pearl Harbor film again. There's an interesting argument about that in there, and I, maybe you can tell me how accurate their depiction of the official explanation is, because mm-hmm. maybe they have it wrong. But um, what they're saying is that the explanation is that the trusses sagged. Mm-hmm and pulled the exterior columns inward. And you do see that inward bowing yeah. of the columns before the collapse. And the theory there that the film is espousing is that 
the trusses, if they're so weak by fire that they're collapsing under their own weight, how do they have the strength to break the exterior column? Well, they're pulling the columns. And they, they, and, huh? they pull the columns. I, I actually do a, an experiment uh, on my YouTube channel where I take a chain and I, uh, I string it between two two columns. So it acts like a, like a floor truss, like the, the trusses are the, the metal structure underneath the concrete floors. It's kind of a, a zigzag. Mm. Yep. You can look up trusses online if people want to know what a truss looks like. Now, a truss is a rigid structure. So when it's, when it's there in place, it's, it's, it's between the columns in the middle and the columns on the outside. So it's providing mm-hmm. uh, rigidity between, between the inside and the outside. So it's, uh, it, it, it gives the whole structure some, uh, some, some, some strength. Now, if you heat up a col- uh, heat up a truss so it becomes softer and starts to sag, instead of uh, providing that 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 strength and that resistance, it actually starts to pull inwards by its own weight. Now, you ask how strong it is; it's going to be relevant if it hasn't if it hasn't broken. It's as strong as a rope is strong. You know, a rope doesn't provide any strength in terms of resisting pushing forces. But if you take a, say, a 100-foot-long rope or even better, a 50-foot-long chain with very thick links and you hook one end uh, to one wall and hold one end and then try to pull that chain straight, you won't be able to do it because chains uh, sag and they pull inwards because they're sagging. So what's happened is you've kind of taken this truss, which is a rigid structure, and by heating it up, you make it into a a soft structure, kind of like a rope or a chain. And so it starts to sag Mm -hmm. and it starts to pull in from the sides, just like a a loose chain would if you put it between two hooks. And because it starts out perfectly horizontal, it creates a huge amount of uh, pulling force because you know how much force it would take to pull a chain perfectly straight, like a really heavy chain that's, that's quite long. So it pulls in the walls from the outside, and that's what you see. Mm. That's what you see in the video. You see the walls being gradually pulled in, and then eventually they, there's kind of a sudden inward pull as they they give way. And then once the outside walls are no longer supporting anything, the load gets transferred inside the building, and there isn't enough remaining capacity amongst the remaining columns, and so some of the core columns fail, and the building collapses. Interesting. I think I know what you're going to say to this, but I'm going to ask you anyway. What do you make of the the pulverization of all the contents of the buildings? And to my mind, you got two 110-story office mm-hmm. buildings. There should have been thousands and thousands of filing cabinets, computers, mm-hmm. desks, chairs. And I've heard a lot of different testimony of people at Ground Zero that said, man, it was just dust and metal. Yeah. You don't find a desk you don't find a chair you don't find a telephone a computer the biggest piece of a telephone i found was half the keypad and it was uh-huh. this big yeah i heard this from a, a lot of different people what do you make of that oh, have you ever seen those those videos on youtube where they take an industrial grinder and they toss things into it no i've not seen that well, check them out They're kind of a, kind of interesting but they'll, they'll take things like this there's grinders that you can toss things into and it'll grind up a car Mm-hmm. Uh, the smaller grinders, like you're uh, a paper shredder, you probably have paper shredders at the office uh, that you stick um, stick in some sheets of paper, and these teeth kind of go crunch, 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 and they they grind through it. What 
happened with the World Trade Centers collapsing was that as things fell, you know, obviously they get faster. By the time most of the steel reached the ground, it was going between 50 and 100 miles an hour. And there was a lot of it all packed into this one place. And it wasn't just like big beams. There was small bits of steel from the trusses being uh, mangled together. And there was all kinds of uh, other heavy bits of, uh, of steel and machinery and stuff. Very, very rapidly coming down in this very small area. And essentially, it acted like a giant grinder, except a very, very rapid one. It was just like an almost an instant pulverization of everything. As an engineer, Richard Human, you might have heard of him. He was the chief electrical engineer for the Twin Towers, actually. Mm-hmm. And he, he talked about um, these enormous, enormous transformers that were on multiple floors that weighed tens of tons, and they were never found. They were never, completely eradicated. Do you think that... Do you think they could have been grinded the way you're describing? Yeah. I mean, a transformer is just a bunch of uh, a bunch of wire wrapped around a core. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, unless it had a stolid steel core of a specific shape, which would, it would probably get stripped away. The, have you ever been to the, I'm sure you have, you've been to the Memorial Museum? No, I won't go there. Okay. I'm not. I don't like I don't like the nine eleven museum, and it's not because of conspiracy theories. It's no, I understand. I, I, I'm I'm a New Yorker, and they basically treat Ground Zero like it's Disneyland, like it's an attraction, and I take exception to that. I wouldn't say that it's it's pretty respectful, and there's there's one section especially. Well, there's a, there's a number of sections that were of increased seriousness. Like there's there's one section where they won't let you take any cameras, and then there's another one. Uh, which is where they, they, they share the names of all the people who who lost their lives there and you know, little I mean there's a there's a gift shop where they sell toy fire trucks. There there is, yeah, but uh it, <laughs> it's they didn't they didn't originally want to have a gift shop when they did, did the museum because they thought it would be disrespectful. But people yeah. asked for a gift shop because they wanted to have something to remember it by. And you could argue that it's a bit tacky, but you know, people wanted a memorial that they could take away. Uh, and yeah. you know, I bought things in the gift shop. I bought some books. We have a really tiny, tiny 9-11 museum here on Staten Island, actually. Is it? Does it have a gift shop? No. <laughs> it's just one. It's like basically one room. Okay. It's in, a place yeah. called, it's in a place called Snug Harbor, which is a cultural center that used to be a lodging for sailors. And they have all kinds of different buildings there. There's a 9-11 memorial. We have a memorial near the Staten Island Ferry as well. It's very interesting, actually. It shows all the faces of the people that were killed from Staten Island, and they're, they're done like in stone on the memorial. Yeah, it's pretty intense. Yeah, it's what the uh, the the memorial museum is pretty intense, especially the actual memorial part of it, which is you know, where they memorialize the people. Uh, it's very emotional. People, very emotional. I mean, I first time I went there, I <clears throat> I uh, had a few tears, but and uh, you see, <laughs> they have. They have uh, boxes of tissues around it because uh, everyone who goes in there starts crying. Yeah. So it's uh, yeah, yeah. It's 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 not it's not making light of the situation. I mean, I know I can I understand you not liking the gift shop, but it's uh, and I, I wouldn't yeah you know, say go there because it's it's up to you. But it's uh, but my my point really was that they they have some stuff from the World Trade Center that survived the collapse. Like they have one of the engines for the the elevators. Uh, things like mm. that, which you reminded me of. You said the transformer, and I think an engine elevator would be a similar type of thing, and that, that did survive. And uh, they have, they've lots of things like effects of people, and yeah, you know, some office contents, but obviously not very much. 
But getting back to the, the original point, I think there wasn't a disintegration of things by explosives. So that doesn't even make any sense. Like, why would the office contents be disintegrated by explosives? Because the office contents aren't holding up the walls. What would be the point of blowing up the desks? What would be the point of blowing up the telephones? And if something is far enough away from an explosion, it's going to maintain its shape. These things were all just crushed by the falling building. They weren't, they weren't blown up by, by explosives. doesn't mean there weren't explosives, but it's not evidence for explosives. Mm. It occurs to me that we've been talking for about two hours now. We Dang. still haven't even mentioned <laughs> the Holsey report. Yeah. What do you think about the Holsey report? I mean, you just like briefly, like one of the things you con- you mentioned when you emailed me was that you, you thought I had some good questions about the Holsey report and you were hoping that you'd get some answers. Yeah. About that. Yeah. I'm particularly disturbed by the, the point you made about the penthouse. How it mm. just kind of drops and it doesn't, he doesn't show us any of the girder sequences or, or what's happening with that. It just kind of disappears. Right? Yeah, it's because it's not actually a simulation, that, uh, that thing. And that's, that's actually being confirmed by people within Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth. Like somebody asked somebody and they got back to me and they said, yeah, it's just, uh, what did they describe it as? A simple gravity rotational visualizational model to look at the result. It wasn't the actual simulation. It isn't. They didn't actually do a simulation uh, of the penthouse collapsing. They just did these simulations where they removed columns and uh, found out what the stress would be on other columns. Do you think the Holsey report is simply mistaken and incorrect, or do you think it's a fraud? I think it is a half good faith effort into looking into it. I feel like Holsey was predisposed to think that it was controlled demolition. He seemed very suspicious from the start. And he was right, you know, back when he started it, like, you know, whatever, four years ago or something, he was talking about things that seemed suspicious, like the FBI having an office there. And, and then, you know, silly things like, you know, they were accounting offices so there wouldn't be enough paper to burn. You know, stuff like that. That if he's already thinking along those lines, it seems like he already had his not his mind made up, but he had suspicions. And the report itself and the study, I think, were mostly done by one of the graduate students. If you look at the, the task breakdown as to who did what, there's, there's two graduate students. I think they were both from China. Uh, one of them now mm-hmm. works in a local government as a civil engineer, and the other one has gone back to China. I can't remember which one is which, but one of them did the simulations. And uh, I think possibly did the, uh, the some of the slides as well and the visualizations and things like that. Uh, so it's just this one graduate student who had no experience whatsoever doing this type of thing before and had to figure all this stuff out uh, doing this thing at the direction of Professor Holsey, of course. But you can tell from the results that it's, it's nowhere near as comprehensive a simulation as the NIST simulation. Now you can say all you like about the NIST simulation, but at least they actually simulated good as moving. Sure, like, you know, there are problems with it, but it's a lot better than what Holsey did or what Holsey's graduate student did. I don't know. I'm, I'm, looking at, I'm looking at two models now, and I'm looking at two models, and neither one of them, to me, is mirroring that collapse. Yeah, but Holsey's, Holsey's only mirrors the collapse because he set it up to mirror the collapse. He said, like, what would happen if if we did something that would essentially give the results that we see like 
and what he did was ridiculous. He he cut columns underneath the penthouse and had it settle into the building, and then he cut all the the columns over multiple floors simultaneously, which is something there was no evidence for whatsoever. And yeah, like I say, you can you can criticize NIST for you can criticize NIST simulation, but NIST simulations actually is a lot better than Hulse's thing. And just because Hulse's crappy simulation looks better, it doesn't mean it actually is better. Right, right. Anyway, this is probably something we could we'd probably need a lot more time to get into and we don't really we have that time now. But I would yeah, yeah but... I would like to talk about it if you if you Sure, sure. I wanna respect your I wanna respect your time and uh but uh, thank you, thank you for talking with me today, Mick. Yeah, well, thank you, thank you for uh, for first of all for contacting me, and uh, and secondly for for talking to me. And I appreciate your position. I know you have a lot of respect for the the victims of nine eleven, and you have concerns. And I would hope that those concerns can be resolved one way or the other. You know, I, I I'd, be, I'd be fine with another investigation, but I know it's not going to happen just because there isn't there isn't the justification for it. So I guess we'll see. Where the nine eleven truth movement truth movement goes over the next few years. Yeah, I'm going to pay a lot of attention to to Holsey and his response to his critics, and mm-hmm. see what happens. We'll see what yeah. anybody else. Because you got to be, you got to admit, to be fair, we do have to hear his response. Oh yeah, no, I've, I want to hear his response. <laughs> That's uh, yeah, yeah. I will be very very interested to see what he has to say about it. You can understand if it if it seems a little peculiar to me that. A forensic structural engineer didn't understand the NIST model, but you do. It seems kind of crazy, but I think there was uh, aspects of it he didn't understand. Uh, like he got a bit confused about the thing with them only modeling half the building and things like that. So it will be very interesting to see how he does actually respond to the criticism he's got on on this report. Yeah, let's see, and uh, maybe we can talk again after we get hear something from Holsey. Indeed, yeah. All right. Well, I'm definitely going to go now. So uh, thank you very much. All right, Mick. Good night. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.